Welcome to the Radiant Church Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Grab a Bible or open up your favorite Bible app as we get into God's Word together. Grab your Bibles. We are going to be in Luke chapter 21 today. Luke chapter 21. If you do not bring or if you do not own a Bible, we would like to put one in your hands if you would like one. So just simply throw your hand up in the air and one of our ushers will put a Bible in your hands if you would like one for this morning. If you don't own a Bible at all, please do me a favor, write your name in that Bible, and that is now yours to take home. It is our gift to you. Luke chapter 21. For these last few weeks, we have been seeing Jesus in action at the temple. It started off with him coming in and flipping over some tables and chasing out the money changers, people who were taking advantage of those who were vulnerable and coming to worship. But Jesus didn't just flip over tables. He began to sit down and teach. And this is where we still find Jesus now in the temple teaching in Luke chapter 21. Now, let me give a little bit of preface before we dive in. Um, this is, a, at first, a confusing chapter. Um, at first, how it starts with a widow giving all that she has. And then we have an extended discourse of predictive prophecy. Um, not all prophecy predicts the future, and Jesus doesn't do much of it. But here in one chapter, Um, Almost the entire chapter is Jesus predicting events to come. Um, And although it may not make sense how these things are all connected, hopefully by the time we are done today, you will see how the Word of God can speak to us. Amen? Let me read verses 1 through 4, share where we're going to go, and then I want to pray. Luke 21, 1 through 4. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. Family, today I want to talk for just a few minutes about the purpose of fear. The purpose of fear. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I pray for your strength right now in this moment, that you would just align my thoughts to your thoughts, that you would bridle my words to only declare, thus saith the Lord, no more and no less. I pray that you would give me clarity of thought, concision of speech. God, I pray that you would give me a proclamation that is both compassionate and courageous, so that your church may be edified. God, use the entirety of my being in this moment to honor you and to lift you up through the preaching and teaching of your word. God, whether man may notice or not, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. How many people grew up going to Christian camps over the summer? Amen. Praise God. We made it, y'all. We made it. We survived Christian camp. Uh, Well, I I grew up in a uh, Christian household. My dad and mom and dad were both in ministry, so I grew up going to to camp. And I went to this one camp in North Carolina pretty much every year. And I don't want to say the names, but I don't want y'all looking up while I'm talking because they may still be around. Um, anyway, it was a great camp. We went for several years, um, but I remember when I, was a, when I became a teenager, 13 years old, I got to go to the big camp, right? You know, the big kid camp. Now we're finally grown. We're 13, got life figured out. 
So we get to now get the full wilderness experience. And so one of the first weeks of this camp, when you would go actually go camping at the camp, where you'd kind of go out into the woods and spend a couple days actually sleeping under the stars in sleeping bags. Now, those of you who know me know that that's not my deal. I'm in. Air conditioning is a grace of God. Amen. We, we work long and hard to get inside. Amen. All right now. Uh, but nevertheless, this was, uh, I didn't have a choice. And so here we are camping outside. And it was actually a pretty cool experience. Um, they had one of those uh, covered wagons. I don't know if y'all remember like the Oregon Trail wagons, the old school wagons with like the white top. They actually had a replica of one of those in the middle. It was a huge replica of it. Um, this big giant bonfire. I mean, it was a pretty cool experience. And we're doing um, what normal camp stuff is. We're, we're singing songs, we're walking around, we're doing the s'mores thing, and it's pretty normal so far. Um, but uh, about maybe an hour or two into the festivities, I see one of the camp counselors who is not supposed to be at this camping trip, who's supposed to be back at the main site, they come out of the woods down the path, and they go reach to the main camp counselor that's with us. And he pulls them over to the side, and you hear a lot of whispering, a lot of, you know, going on and, 13-year-old kids, we're interested, we're intrigued, we're looking, and I see a lot of concerned faces, a lot of darting glances, a lot of, all of a sudden, a little anxiety, a little worry on his face. And they call one more counselor, then another counselor, and next thing you know, all the camp counselors are sitting there, um, all talking, looking very, very scared, very worried. About that time, half the counselors actually go back on the path and leave us, um, and the other half stays, but half of the camp counselors go back towards the main site. The camp counselors that are there, in a very honestly professional and calm voice, come over to us and say, hey, y'all, let's pack up all of our things, and let's get ready to go. Um, now, mind you, we didn't want to be out there in the first place, um, but now that you told us we have to go, we don't want to go. That's where we're good teenagers, right? Like, no, we don't want to go. Um, and so all of a sudden, um, they're saying, hey, we, we really need to go. And they're not smiling. They're not joking. They are clearly serious. As a matter of fact, about five minutes into this, them trying to corral us into leaving, we see adults come out. Now, if you've been to Christian camp, you know when the adults start showing up, there's a problem, right? There's probably not enough adult supervision in these camps, uh, but we'll talk about that later. Um, but when the adults start showing up, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, it, it just got real. Right? They came with the lanyards and the badges and the glow-in-the-dark vests, and they are trying to corral us into going. And we are just pestering, like, what's going on? What's happening? Tell us what's going on. They're just being very calm but very clearly worried that let's just get all of our things and let's get ready to go. Let's get all of your things. Let's get ready to go. And finally, we just said, man, look, tell us what's happening. Right? We're, we got our stuff. We're in line. We're, we're walking towards the camp. Tell us what's going on. Um, and they tell us that, uh, you know, hey, we are... Um, where this camp is settled in the mountains, about you know, three to five miles away, there is a hospital, uh, a mental hospital for the criminally insane. And there was a power outage, and some of the folks haven't been accounted for. And so out of an abundance of caution, they're just moving us back to the main site. And we're like, is there like a crazy person in the woods? They're like, no, it's, you know, it's okay. They probably have already got them. It's not a big deal. We're just going to go back to the main cabin just out of an abundance of caution. Y'all, this is a 100% true story. This ain't a preacher story. This is a real story, right? This, this really happened. Uh, we are walking down this path, and out of the woods comes screaming a man in a, in a hockey Jason mask um, with a chainsaw in his hands. He comes running out of the woods, screaming at the top of his lungs. Now, y'all, I'm the youngest of five kids, which if you're the youngest of five kids, you know that, that's, a, that's some suffering right there. Right? You only get spoiled when your parents have three kids or less. When you got more than three kids, nobody gets spoiled. Y'all, I've been in the Marine Corps for six years. I went to the Citadel. I've done some hard things in life. But I got to tell you, today still, 
That is one of the top three most terrified I have been in my life. And out comes this man wearing this hockey mask, screaming at the top of his lungs with a chainsaw in his hand. I think it was on. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was on. Um, I might be embellishing a little bit. I don't know if it was on. Anyway, he was holding a chainsaw, running out the woods, screaming. And I just remember thinking, I'm going to die. Fear, like I have never felt before in my 13 years of walking on this planet, grips my body. You know when fear kind of grips you, like all of a sudden time slows down? You feel your heart beating in your chest. And depending on your personality, you probably respond to fear a couple of different ways. And we saw all of those different ways in those teenagers that day. There were some who just immediately fell down on the ground and started crying. Like, they just gave up on life. Like, look, I'm going to go. I'm going to cry. That's going to be it. Like, seriously. There were some who just started screaming back, right? They, the guy was screaming at them, and so they just started screaming too. Um, but if you were like me, like, you, you, were, you, were, you were born for this moment. Back and elbows, baby. Like, I, I took off, y'all. I don't think I've ever ran that fast in my life since. Um, I just took off. And what was shameful about it, if I'm honest, there was a couple of folks who were kind of in my way. And, like, we were friends, but, you know, I, I, I got to make it home. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, you know what I'm saying? It was real Darwinian survival of the fittest in that moment, right? And so, I, I mean, I took off. I might have pushed over a couple of kids. I don't you know it happened so fast, right? I don't know. Um, but either way, I made it back um, to the camp. And when I ran back into the campsite, sure as, man, the day is long, there are the other half of the camp counselors that had left earlier. They were on the ground in tears laughing. In tears. Like, no regard for safety. No head counts were given. Like, no, let's find these children. Like, they were just on the ground crying laughing. And apparently, come to find out, this is something they had done for years. And I think they had gotten it from, even from a movie. Um, but they had just done this every single year to all these new 13. I, it was kind of a humbling thing. You know, the 13-year-olds finally make it to the big camp. And so it was kind of a thing meant to humble us, so they said. Uh, but either way, man, I, in all the years since then, I have not felt more fear in my life um, than that moment right there. But fear is a powerful thing, isn't it? Fear is a powerful thing, isn't it? You know, I didn't notice I was tired until I stopped running. I didn't notice where people were until I stopped running. I didn't notice how dirty my clothes had gotten from running through the woods. I didn't notice all those secondary things until I had stopped running, such as the power of fear. And although it's a humorous story, more funny to you than it is to me, um, apparently, although it's a humorous story, it's grounded in the truth of our text because there is a purpose to fear, y'all. Now, some of us have been taught that fear is sin. Maybe you've heard scriptures like 1 Timothy 1.7, misapplied to your life that says, for God has not given a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. And you've heard scriptures like that oftentimes taught in the context that if you ever fear, and fear's little cousins, anxiety, worry, uncertainty, if you ever have any fear or any one of those other things, then you just don't have enough Family, today I'm going to push back on that a little bit. I'm going to push back on that because God, the Scripture says in 1 Timothy 1.7, it's not talking about fear, it's talking about a spirit of fear. It's talking about a, a ruling and presiding force in your life that is driven by fear, not fear itself. Much of the last few years in our lives, in our media, in our homes, and in our families has been infiltrated by fear. 
And depending on your understanding of the, the place of fear in your life, you probably had one of a couple responses. If you've been taught your whole life that having fear is not faith, then you've just pretended like you are not afraid, like you're not worried, like you're not concerned, like you're not anxious. Or maybe because you don't know the place of fear, you have let it get in the driver's seat instead of in the passenger seat where it belongs. And fear has been directing and guiding more of your decisions than honestly you would like it to. Today, family, we are going to see the purpose of fear, that fear has a place in the life of the believer because we're human and things are bad. And there's no, not, no need to deny any one of those two things. You are human, and we live in a broken, fallen world that only seems to be getting more broken and more fallen, and that should produce an emotional response, whether you want to call it fear or not, whether you call it worry, uncertainty, anxiety, or any other things, that the root of it all is a fear. And I want to posit today that it's not a bad thing when applied and used properly. But let's lay down some foundation first. Let's start with this story of the widow in verses 1 through 4. You see, Jesus was in the temple. He had finished teaching, and so now he was watching the collection box. And several wealthy folks wrote large checks with commas and zeros, and Jesus was silent. And then a woman who dropped two small coins, leptas is the coin. It's the smallest denomination of currency in the Jewish times. It's our penny today. There was no smaller coin at that time. She dropped two small pennies into the box. And something about seeing that provoked Jesus to speak, and he says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the rest. We're going to come back to this at the end of our time, but let me just lay this down in front of you. Jesus judges our faithfulness and our generosity, not by how much we give, but by how much we keep to ourselves. Jesus judges our faithfulness and our generosity, not by how much we give of our time, treasure, talents, but by how much we keep to ourselves. You see, the wealthy gave a lot, but they also kept a lot too. The poor widow gave much less, but kept almost nothing. And that's why Jesus says she gave everything. Jesus takes this opportunity to respond to the the distracting conversation of the disciples in verse 5. After seeing this conversation, some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said, verse 6, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Let me give us some backdrop for a second. Maybe because the disciples felt awkward in that moment of seeing how God judges faithfulness and generosity. But for whatever reason, the disciples began to notice the beauty of the temple that they were in. The majestic stonework, the craftsmanship. The the temple that was rebuilt after its first destruction is the temple that they were living in now. wasn't completed until about A.D. 64. It took so long to recreate, even bigger than the temple that Solomon built. We're talking about columns of pure, uncut marble. We're talking about decorations overlaid with solid gold. We're talking about if it were standing today, it would be one of the seven great wonders of the world. It was a feat of engineering and would be worth billions in raw material. And this is the temple that they worshipped in, a beautiful temple for the people and the worship of God. And yet Jesus says the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. In the next sections of this chapter, we're going to see two distinct things that Jesus wants to talk about. One is he's going to talk about the actual destruction of the temple, which took place in AD 70. 
And then he's going to segue from talking about the destruction of the temple to talk about the coming of the Son of Man when he eventually returns for his church. These are two distinct conversations. One is talking about how the change in the world will affect God's people, and the next one is talking about how God's coming back will affect the world. So he begins with God's people. Verse 7, teacher, they ask, when will all these things happen? When will the destruction of this temple take place? Verse 8, he replied, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and saying the time has come. But don't believe them. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place. But at the end, won't follow immediately. Then he added, nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and there will be famines and plagues and many lands. And there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. But before all of this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer these charges against you, for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Even those closest to you, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will betray you. They will even kill some of you. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your soul. Now, this is important for us today, because although we don't have a temple built by the hands of men in the same way the Jews had, there is still a distinct suffering and reality that Christians must face if we are to follow Jesus. And so Jesus is speaking to Jewish Christians who value the beauty of the temple because the temple was important. It was the gathering place for God's people. It was where worship happens. It was where generosity and benevolence happened. It was the central place for the life of even the Jewish Christian of the day. And Jesus is saying the temple will be destroyed. Let me translate that to our day. Church may have to look different, y'all. But just because the temple is destroyed, it does not mean the kingdom isn't advancing. Just because the temple is destroyed doesn't mean the kingdom isn't advancing. If this building that we are currently in right now suddenly had a fire when we weren't in it and burned down to the ground, would we still be able to worship God? Would it change anything? Yes and no, right? We have to meet outside, right? Some of y'all ain't going to come because it's hot. Let's just be honest. You ain't going to show up without the AC. That's not y'all's Stay focused, y'all. Come on now. Help me. Help me. If we didn't have this building, it would be different. But would we still, would anything change about God? Would anything change about the mandatory command to gather and worship? Would anything change about the spirit of God in us? Would God be less pleased with our worship because we didn't have microphones and stage and lights? Would anything change? Would anything necessary go away? No. It would just be harder. It would just be different. Let me, let, me, let me come in your backyard for a second. When they took prayer out of schools, what changed? Something changed, right? But did we lose anything essential? Did we lose anything necessary? 
The temple may be destroyed, but the kingdom is advancing. The temples are these signs of Christianity that are good things. God is saying that we may lose some of those things, but the kingdom will still advance. Are the laws changing to allow what God hates and to punish what God allows and calls us to do? Yes. Does that change our call to faithfulness? No. No. We don't lose anything necessary when the world destroys the temples that we have built. When the, Lord, when the world changes the laws, when the world changes the school curriculums that our children are illiterate, nothing essential changes. It just changes how we engage the world. And let me tell you, parents, families, I feel the same things that you feel. I feel the same fear that you fear. I see the curriculums changing. And I wonder if I'm going to have enough time with Ezra and Judah to pour into them the truth before they are swept away with the lies. I worry that I won't have enough time with my daughter, Naya, to make sure that she knows that her value isn't in what she looks like or the value that other place put on her, but her values in that she's created in the image of God for a purpose that transcends the standards and expectations of this world. I wonder if I'll have enough time to do that for the world gets a hold of her. But when the temples are destroyed, it's not our chance to fight back. It's not our chance to feel like we're losing ground. It's our chance to remember that nothing essential is lost. The school wants to change the curriculum that teaches good. I'll turn off the TV and I'll sit down with my sons and I'll disciple them on my own. The world wants to pull away from the the moral grounding that has held the nation together. Good. It's not their job anyway. It just makes it harder when we don't have a temple, but it doesn't make it impossible. What I'm trying to tell you, family, is the world is going to get worse. And we can't stop it. We're called to be faithful in it. It's just going to be harder. He talks about two types of persecution. He says, you'll be dragged into synagogues, verse 12, and prisons, and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. He's talking about a legislative persecution applied to the Christian. That what if the law is changed where churches are no longer tax exempt and your giving is no longer tax deductible? Will you still be faithful? But also, not just legislative changes but familial changes. Verse 16, even those closest to you, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will betray you. Has anybody in the last few years had someone that they know and love question whether you're saved because you disagree on a policy issue? Has that happened to anybody? That people who you've grown up with for years, who you've done life with for years, that question whether you know Jesus because you disagree on a legislative agenda. You disagree on a policy position. You disagree on a vote for a candidate. They wonder if you're even saved. This is what happens. We confuse the temple with the kingdom. This is what happens when we confuse the very good things that give us an opportunity to share the gospel with the gospel itself. I'm glad we have a church building. 
I'm glad we have some laws in place. I'm glad we have some curriculum boundaries. I'm glad for those things. But if you take them away, you haven't taken anything from the kingdom. You haven't taken anything from the people of God. Just to be a little harder. And Jesus is preparing his disciples. The destruction of the temple is coming, y'all. If you can't worship without the building, then it's not true worship. If you can't serve God without the law making it easy and accessible, then maybe you ain't serving God. If you can't worship without the AC, then maybe what we're doing isn't worship. He's preparing his followers. You know what he tells them to do in verse 19? Here's the command. When the laws are turning against you, when your family is turning against you, when the temples of culture that we have built, these safe spaces for Christianity that we have built inside of culture are torn down, what does he call us to do? Stand firm. I love this, y'all. I love this. Here's why. You may not feel like you've got the courage and the clarity and the convictions to charge the hill for Jesus. And we're going to work on that. But that's not what God is calling us to do. He's not asking you to go take back the temple. He's saying just stand firm in the faith. Just be immovable to love people and to willing to die to love people. To preach truth, even if it costs you some friends and access and promotions on your job. To disciple your children, even though the winds of this world are blowing against you, to push them back with the spirit of the word. Stand firm. Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple, how the world is going to uniquely affect believers now, expands his conversation to talk about his own coming again in verse 25. And it says, and there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and strange tides. People will be terrified and what they see coming upon the earth. For the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up, for your salvation is near. Jesus is saying not only will Christians feel this slide towards brokenness and wickedness in a unique way, but the entire world will feel the groanings of creation before Jesus comes back. Now, let me pause for some of the, the doomsdayers in the, in the room. Every generation has thought that this was talking about their time. Let me just put that out there. Every generation on the planet Earth has thought, oh, this is true, buddy. This, Jesus is about to come back. And it's been 2,000 years, y'all. He's going to come in his own time. But what he's saying is that there is this inevitable slide towards chaos, this inevitable slide towards war. Even the earth itself, the weather, the environment will be raging at the brokenness of this world. Y'all, we, we are the people mentioned in verse 26. It's okay when you look at the news cycle, when you look at what's happening both locally and globally. It's okay when you look at what's happening right here at your home and, and far across the world. It's okay to feel a little bit of sense of fear. Maybe you don't call it fear. Maybe you call it worry. You call it anxiety. You call it uncertainty. 
It's okay to feel a little bit of angst as you look into our world because we're human. But what do we do when we feel those things? What do we do when we feel afraid? What do we do when we feel uncertain? What do we do when we feel out of control? I know what many of us are tempted to do. We're tempted to just retreat back into our bubble, aren't we? My four and no more. We're tempted to hide from the world. We're tempted to, to have a scarcity mindset of just making sure that we are taken care of and everyone else got to take care of them. But Jesus tells us the purpose of fear in verses 34 through 36. He says, watch, don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. For that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. There's this old gospel song. That says, oh, Lord, I'm running, running for 100, because 99 and a half won't do. Y'all know that song? Lord, I'm running, running. Y'all don't know. It's fine. That's all right. That's fine. I appreciate the three of y'all who do. It's an old, old school song. All right. (laughs) Slow down. Not one of them kind of preachers. I'm sorry. I can't sing it. But there's this old song that says, Lord, I'm running for 100, because 99 and a half won't do. This idea that I want to give 100 to God, even though 99 and a half is better than most, even though 99 and a half is good enough, even though no one would complain that I kept that point five for myself. No, Lord, I want you to have everything. Here's the purpose of fear, family. Fear reminds you what is most important. Fear has a clarifying effect to focus your senses on what is most important. When I was at that camp and I saw that man coming out the window, there was lots of things that I would have considered important in that moment. My belongings, my friends, none of that stuff became important when that happened. Took off running because life and survival became more important. Well, for the believer, what's most important? What's most important? The most important thing for the believer is God getting what he paid for. God getting the life and the devotion and the faithfulness that his blood purchased. And so fear, when we feel those feelings rising up in us about uncertainty, about being afraid, about being angsty, about what's happening in the world, we should not just dispel that or dismiss it or ignore it. We should use it and say, Lord, I'm feeling the fear. Help me to see what's important right now. You know what churches around the world are not fighting over right now? You know what churches around the world are not kicking people out of their churches over right now? Things like complementarianism, gifts of the Spirit, translations of the Bible, and all these secondary issues. Why? Because it's 10 of Christians in this village. The rest of the 90 are against us trying to kill us. We got to figure out a way to work together. And we are far too free right now. We got too much time to be fighting over little things. But fear, persecution, That the wickedness of this world will force us, if we don't choose it now, to force our hand to focus on what's most important. 
keep alert, verse 36 says, keep alert and pray. Keep alert, pray that you might be strong enough to do two things, escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. Keep alert, pray. Keep alert, pray. Be knowledgeable about what's happening. Understand what the word of God has to say about it. And pray for power to stand and be faithful. If we just did those two things, family, what a witness that would be in this world. What a witness that would be in this neighborhood, in this city. If there was just a people who weren't being swayed left and right by the winds of doctrine, by the cultural forces, but but were knowledgeable about those things, willing to engage with those things, but ultimately our feet rest firmly on the word of God. Our feet rest firmly upon the righteousness of God. So what do I want from you today, family? And I'm done. What do I want from you? I want you to acknowledge the reality. Things are bad. Not all bad. There's lots of good. And we should look for those good things to celebrate and rejoice. But let's not pretend this world isn't being what the world is. And for the believer trying to stand for righteousness and faithfulness, it will get harder particularly for you that's okay too. Let's still love even if it gets us killed. Let's still serve even if it gets us arrested. Let's still give even though we have nothing left because ultimately, although this temple may be destroyed, the kingdom is advancing. And the truth is, even though this temple may be destroyed, the kingdom will advance. I want to live a long life. Y'all got kids and I want to see their kids have kids. I do. But here's what I do know. That even if this temple is destroyed, the kingdom will advance. Kings and emperors and dictators have tried to kill Christianity by killing Christians, and it has never worked. It has never worked. And I don't know what persecution is to come in America. I'm not saying it will ever come. I don't know. All I'm saying is we have to have a theology that is deeper than comfort, that is grounded, not what we can get from God, but giving God what he paid for from our lives. And although these temples may be destroyed, the tax advantages that churches enjoy, the, the, the laws that sometimes protect Christianity, all of those things may be going away. That's okay. It's good to have those things, but it's not necessary. The kingdom can still advance. It may just mean we have to do a little bit more work. Will we commit to giving God everything that he paid for out of our lives, even as it gets harder to do that? That's a step. That's a decision that we have to make every single day, y'all. We have to wake up and say, God, today is yours again. God, today is yours. Again, God, I am yours. My family, my finances, my time is yours. My career is yours. These studies at the school are yours. Help me make much of you while I'm here in this place. Let's pray together. Thank you for joining our family in North Charleston as we heard God's word preached today. We would love to connect with you. You can find us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Send us a message to learn more about what Radiant Church is doing or support the vision of Radiant Church at radiantcharleston.com giving.